0: Oh, I was hoping he was gonna do that. Hello and welcome to Chicken Space. Actually, I'm standing next to some turkeys right now. You guys are getting bigger. You get too much bigger and we're gonna start thinking it's Thanksgiving. Anyway, glad you're all here, uh, if you're here. And um, today, continuing with notes uh, for another planet, this little series. Hello there, Mr. Turkey. You just want to be the center, don't you? This uh, the series of notes for another planet, and today, going back to the time um, that Ann and I lived in Nome, Alaska, where it was my first call as a pastor, and I got to sit right there at the intersection uh, between a hunting-gathering culture that spanned back thousands of years and um, the recent arrival of people like myself right agricultural people who had grown up in cities like Los Angeles or farms in Minnesota or wherever and so that was one of the pivotal experiences of my life I've shared another one the bicycle ride across the country but uh, this one happy to be sharing that with you today thanks for joining me thanks for joining us again uh, more information over at manyspokes.com about these happy hands or the healing work that I do at icemethod.com thanks a bunch i am a pilgrim i am a stranger. i've never seen a hello hello on episode 15 here i guess the baby chicks are like 10 days in since last uh i was saying some words and sharing that experience of uh bringing those 800 baby chicks to our farm and uh telling you how the previous time we brought a thousand chicks it was quite the challenge and lost so many chicks oh this is so much different the weather's been perfect and the chicks are happy and they they seem like they're about triple their size in 10 days Um, eating healthy um, more information I'm sure than you want to know but when baby chicks are cool or cold uh, it tends to kind of block up their little digestive poopy track and they get something called poopy butt and then you got to go and you got to Uh, like scrape that off so that they can uh, keep their circulation their flow going of food in food out but when it's nice and warm like this we've only seen that happen once and maybe one or two chicks has has, uh, died because of that lost total um, probably only five six seven is that right maybe nine chicks so far so just a tiny tiny number of mortalities. They're all healthy, they're running around. It's a really wonderful, wonderful feeling um, compared to the previous times of raising baby chicks. And certainly we've learned a lot, but there's also just this real feeling of just being blessed by those chicks being healthy and very thankful and appreciative and not at all like taking that for granted uh, based on these last experiences. So. I'll continue to keep you posted on their growth. It's, um, it's really nice to see. And uh, um, the, the grown up chicks, the the hens or chickens, the hens from February, they're really uh, laying. Most of them, I think, are laying now. And we're getting 22, 23, 24, 25 dozen a day. Um, huge for us. Like you can multiply that $5 and then you can figure out our daily income, how much we make each day, seven days a week. Not huge. You'd still do a lot better being a barista at Starbucks or something like that. But very satisfying to have reached this point, hopefully by next year, um, or who knows, maybe the year after, or who knows, maybe never, get to a point where um, we are able to start having those interns. We've kind of figured out the system, and we can start showing other people, and it can be... uh, an easier process for the next person that comes along and wants to have a have a flock of chickens that's saving food from being thrown into landfills and uh, trying to trying to make a living off the land. So anyway, good good feeling right now. Had a thunderstorm last night, lots of rain, like an inch of rain, and uh, for hour. hey there Milo coming over here, puppy dog, your old dog, lay down. Doing a little podcast here so um yeah so we had this rain and um summer is is waning a week ago it was labor day and it was hot and nice for all the people that were here at lake chelan and out on their boats and on the beach and stuff like that and then last night the big rain heard a clap of thunder this morning it's cloudy and we can still get some warm weather but the days are sure getting shorter Um, Which if you've got chickens, that's kind of like an important thing because you need 14, 15, 16 hours of light per day for the chickens to keep laying. So pretty soon here, I'm going to need to add some uh, supplementary light to the chickens as, as we head into fall and then winter where the days are shorter. We don't have any power up here this year, any electricity, so this year I have to figure out a solar solution Um, Instead last year I just uh, ran some power cords out to where the chickens were and had a light on a timer for them. Alright, so that's the update here at the Happy Hens Farm. Thankful to share that with you, thankful to be living that life. And um, I've actually been thinking a lot about this podcast and to be honest, um, hesitating. So here we are on a farm, but uh, Ann and I and our kids, we spent three and a half years living in Nome, Alaska. And uh, interesting thing about Nome, Alaska is it's a town of about 4,000 people, which is similar to the size of the city limits of Chelan. Uh, and half of the people there uh, at the time were Yupik Eskimo, and about half of the people were people that had uh, come up to Nome for work or whatever. Um, from other places in the United States, people from this Western agricultural culture, and so um, this reflection is part of this notes for another planet that you know that I've been talking about. This psychic who came to me and said, "Hey, Lars, it's uh, you know, his greeting to me was like, you seem like you're you're from another planet, and you're just here visiting to take notes, and then take those notes back and explain what life is like here on Earth." Um, and I've already shared like how much I resonated with that. And whether that's true or not, I have zero caring about it. It's just, ah, oh, that resonated for me. And um, I'm happy to be a note taker. And I think uh, that being able to live in Nome, um, being able to live in Nome, Alaska in that culture, being able to live in Nome, Alaska in that culture as a pastor in a church there where the congregation also was about half and half, but had, um, strong traditional native roots in the Lutheran church. Uh, count that as one of the rare and great privileges of my life. And so when I get back to that other planet and it's time to explain like what earth is about, um, this will definitely be a be a part of the story. And uh, in the in the office there of the church, um, where I would go and do my work and spend a lot of time thinking, there was actually a mastodon tusk that had been found on the beach, and it was hanging in the wall, and it was a full tusk, and it was over six feet long of this animal that's now extinct. Um, And there I got to sit. And that animal was an important uh, part in times past of uh, hunting, gathering culture for people. It was certainly an important part of being a mastodon when they existed and they no longer exist. They're extinct. Um, And just so like this isn't this idealistic thing about hunting, gathering, um, it's probably hunting, gathering people who would had a part maybe in extincting those animals. That's one theory. Um, Another theory is that uh, climate changed so quickly and so dramatically uh, from um, an impact from the sun uh, that uh, uh, many animals became almost instantly extincted. And there's a little bit of a sidetrack, but they actually found a... um, mastodon where when they excavated it it had been frozen in ice when they excavated it the internal contents of its stomach were still fresh like the flowers and things like that which means it didn't even get a chance to digest those before it died and uh, what I've heard is I mean this is just kind of interesting I think what I've heard is that if an animal ate those and or, you know, the enzymes in the stomach and all those kinds of things that are breaking down the the vegetation that was eating, if it had died, um, you wouldn't have fresh flowers inside of a, a mastodon, um, before it could, uh, you know, be frozen. Those, those, that fresh food would have broken down. And instead there's this mastodon that they found excavated out of the ice and, uh, At the time it died, it froze so quickly, so immediately that the contents of its stomach were still fresh thousands of years later um, after the animals had been extincted and this one had been excavated and investigated. So that sure makes you think about this world and changes and how quickly they can happen. Um, But I don't know that that has too much to do with hunting gathering culture. So there I sat in my chair looking up at that mastodon tusk and thinking about having grown up in Los Angeles. And this growing up in Los Angeles and never a thought about hunting gathering, about native people. I mean not judging myself, it's just that wasn't the environment where I thought about those things. I grew up in a little tract house neighborhood and I went to kindergarten, and then I switched schools in first grade and went to Pomelo Elementary School, and then I went to Columbus Junior High, and I went to Canoga Park High School. And all of those years of going to the grocery store and getting our food, my mom had a little garden, but really like food comes from a grocery store. We went out in nature, we hiked, we did those kinds of things. But the base of reference was this house that we lived in, this neighborhood that we lived in, the schools that we attended, the stores that we shopped at. And everywhere I went prior to going to Nome, Alaska and living, sitting there beneath that mastodon tusk for those three and a half years, everywhere I'd been, I walked over land that had been native, that had been hunting, gathering maybe 10, maybe 12,000 years before. But it was never in my awareness that that's what I was doing. And in my conversation since, my experience is that for most of us, most of us on this planet, we don't don't walk around with a daily consciousness that this whole thing about agriculture is new, relatively new in the history of human population. 10, 12,000 years old. Sure, it seems like a long time inside of this system. But for a number of hundreds of thousands of years prior to that, everything on this planet was hunting gathering. And there are on this planet still today a few distant outposts where the hunting gathering life has never been interrupted by agriculture. And so I, I felt so privileged to be in the midst of that not only in the midst of that but really at this intersection place where where the culture was half the population was native tradition the eskimo and the elders uh, some of the elders had been born in in these sod huts with whalebone foundations um, totally in their traditional culture of hunting uh, and gathering there in that arctic Um, environment around the Bering Sea just a few miles south of the arctic circle and then the other half of that culture was from places like I'd grown up in Los Angeles or you know something like that and one of the realizations that I had that just sort of struck me so deeply about living there and as I started to pay attention native culture and it was a question i would ask to other people i said okay so here i i'm living sitting at this intersection you know what is the future of this place and then i asked people to just start looking for me can you please find me one place on this planet where the intersection between a native culture and an agricultural society where that intersection has resulted in that intersection becoming more native rather than more agricultural. Where the the intersection resulted in it becoming a native place instead of an agricultural place. There is a place in Canada that was uh, restored to Native traditions called Nineveh, which I believe that's the name of it, which happened kind of when we were there soon after uh, in northern Canada. So there may be actually an example where agriculture has supported the return to traditional native ways of living. But if so, that's the only place on the entire planet. So when I go back to my other planet to tell them what happened, there has been in the last 12,000 years or so, this transition from all human life on the planet, living in a way that ate from what was provided by nature, right? That, That nature... Grew and provided the plants and the animals. Nobody was doing the tending or the growing or the collecting of them. They were just out gathering and hunting for hundreds of thousands of years. And now you and I, we live in this time of the last 10 to 12,000 years where the world has been in a state of transition where these agricultural societies grew and expanded and wherever they met a native culture, the agricultural society dominated and took it over. And it wasn't like the hunting gathering societies said, great, come on, let's do it. No, in general, like here in the continental United States, This was not a welcome overtaking. It wasn't like, come on in. It was like, no, it was the destruction of traditional cultures. Ending up on reservations dependent on um, agricultural systems, right? And the horror stories are just incredible of this genocide that happened in our country. Or partly from the intentional takeover and partly from the disease. you know, 80 to 95% of native populations were wiped out during this takeover. And why is it that maybe except for Nineveh, in every circumstance, this transition has always gone um, to the victors of the land, have always been the agricultural society. And this is kind of thanks to uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Jared Diamond uh, for sure has talked about this. I'm not original to it, but I think we don't think about it much. That the foundation, foundation, foundation of this agricultural society is the shift from gathering and hunting foods that nature created directly And we simply were in the presence of harvesting that. It changed from that to a society where we started growing our own food. Sure, it comes from nature. It's planted in the earth or the livestock we tend, but it's secondary. It's not primary. We become the caretakers, the tenders. And the thing that shifted, I think that's fundamental that you can look at like in every piece of it, this huge change was that we started to focus on creating and controlling and distributing surpluses that the land would create a surplus for us. And so you could have more wealth and you could have more time and you could have more children. And so, in the meeting of an agricultural society with a hunting-gathering society, the hunting-gathering society is spending a lot of its time in nature, in a relationship with nature, living from it, moving with it to where the plants and the animals were. And an agricultural society can bring a surplus and lay siege to a piece of land, we could send out um, you know, the cavalry across the continental United States and supply them with food that was grown in the East Coast so that they could set up forts and claim areas and keep moving forward and forward. And so I lived in Nome, Alaska in the center of this transition like knowing that this is the history of the world in that place where it was still half Native and yet half of agricultural society had come in. And not to put myself on a pedestal or anything, when we, after that, not too long after that, ended up here in Chelan, I was completely oblivious for many years, except that I knew the name Chelan was the name of the Native people who had first, you know, settled, they're not settled, but lived in, partnered with this land. It wasn't until years later, right, that's how quickly, like, I forgot the lessons of being in Nome. I didn't come to Chelan and be overpowered like I was by the Mastodon Tusk and the Inupiat culture and the hunting and the gathering and the stories and the traditions. No, I came here and, like, I settled right back into, oh, it's such a nice small town compared to this big, huge city, mega city of Los Angeles that I grew up in. And then when I finally did look like it, it was only 1870s when the first people, outsiders came to Chelan. And uh, our main street, Wooden Avenue, is named after one of those first two people. And I believe he was the had a lumber mill and then the guy named Sanders, that's one of our other streets. He came as a merchant. The military had been here for 10 years prior to that. Uh, the, it was said to protect native people from, from outsiders. It's like there were no outsiders. <laughs> and then when, then when people started coming into this area from the outside, then uh, the Chelan people, the Antiat people, people from Moses Lake, areas around here uh, were removed to the Colville Indian Reservation named after a military sergeant or something like that, Colville. Eleven different tribes were removed and put on that land. And I came here and wasn't even sensitive to that. Pretty lake in the summer, beautiful mountains, nice place to live. It's so easy to be inside of this culture of agriculture and the surplus and the acquiring and living inside of this. That was one of the realizations for me living in the middle of that society, half and half. And that over almost the entire planet now, with very few exceptions, exceptions, that transition has been completed from hunting, gathering, to agriculture, to the idea that land can be owned, things can be owned, to the idea that the gathering of surplus is a primary value. And it's more or less, right? In the United States, it's so accentuated that such a primary value of human existence is to acquire surpluses. A political system, an economic system you know, based around this, right? The word capitalism. It's not to get into a political argument, but it's just such a difference. And then this idea of socialism that still is about now surplus, but then the distribution of surplus. And just how different all of this is from the idea that nature gifted us and graced us with all that we needed to live. It's not like that was this idyllic life of never going hungry or anything, but It was a life that was lived in relationship to what nature in that place had already provided. There's a story of of a a white man who comes up to to Alaska, to the northern parts there where whale hunting happened. Uh, Maybe you've seen those pictures of people. um, uh, A village will gather and they've got a big seal skin trampoline. And they're standing around the edges and one person is uh, jumping up. And uh, they would use that sometimes to to be able to see the whales. So this visitor was up there asking, you know, what's what's this for? You know, is it so you can see the whales? And the people answered, no, no, no. This is so that the whales can see us. So that the whales can come to us because they know that we need them. Right? This kind of relationship in nature, not this surplus-driven, conquest-driven, this is mine and I get to have it. Um, that's, I don't mean to speak badly of it, but it's such a big part of who we are and how we identify ourselves. The words competition, it's mine, ownership, all those kinds of things that are, they're just such a part of who we are. I should just say for myself, they were such a part of who I was in my growing up. I didn't even notice it. I was so inside of it. I didn't even notice it. This thing about taking notes for another planet, I mean, it's like, this was probably the biggest place in my life to that date that I had been thrown outside of what I know. Seminary didn't do that. I mean, there were some challenges there, but it didn't throw me outside of my culture. Going to engineering school didn't throw me outside of my culture. And in fact, like I talked about my bicycle ride across the country, that's been such a pivotal part of my life and about the desire to live out of hospitality, that didn't throw me outside of my culture, like those three and a half years in Nome. And the power of that culture is so strong that when I came in to live in Shillan, I was just kind of back in the middle of it again. But it's definitely a note for me to take back to this other planet, to describe this planet In this transition. And sitting under there, under that mastodon tusk, there was just so much to reflect on. And every single Sunday morning at 11 o'clock in the morning, it was my privilege to try to put together words for our community that were based on what was happening in the community, what was happening in the world, what was happening in my life, in a conversation with the tradition that I was coming from, Christianity, the Lutheran tradition of it, the scriptures. And there were some things that began to stick out for me there. Things that began to stick out as I as I thought about the religions of the world, living in this hunting gathering place that All of the big religions of this world are agricultural religions. Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam. They're from the times of agriculture when there was trade to be moved around. Trade which was surplus that had been gathered, people owned. The early Jewish, nomadic um, tradition closer back to hunting gathering. And I've never seen papers on this, never seen a paper written. Why? I think it's because we're so inside of the agricultural culture that nobody's really looked at uh, or written about or researched. I think some people have. But like if you read in Genesis, the beginning of the story of the Old Testament. They're banished from the Garden of Eden. And people talk about, oh, it's the knowledge of good and evil and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, oh, what if if it was as simple as the garden? Is nature taken as hunting gathering? Everything is provided. And what's the booby prize? Like when, when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, like what's the punishment? The punishment is that you're going to live tilling the soil and living by the sweat of your brow. No longer, no longer is nature going to be there as a bounty where you can simply gather that which is already created. No, you're going to, the booby prize is agriculture. The booby prize is that you're going to be stuck being responsible for tilling the land and creating and, and uh, managing and distributing your surplus. No longer is it just pure grace, pure gift. It's like, nope, lost that opportunity. Now you're stuck, you're stuck like creating it, this surplus for yourself. And there's a story in there I think that you could see if you'd sat under that mastodon tusk like I did that that like those things were being written down in a time of transition or a memory of the transition from hunting, gathering to agriculture. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I believe it's true. There's other stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that could also be seen this way, that like they were recording at the time that they were living and the memory of hunting, gathering was still strong. And the memory of those values of hunting gathering, it's like, we don't want to lose those. And they, they wrote the Old Testament as like the booby prize is hunting gathering. But here we are, we're stuck in the middle of it. And I think that's like so powerful for us today. Like this isn't just a little couple of words here about we should go back and be hunter-gatherers. It's like, no, they were like recognizing, I think anyway, back in those first days. It's like, oh, we're, we're already down this road. And there's some things that are happening here that are very problematic. And it's, I mean, they describe it as this idyllic Garden of Eden. I'm not even going to go that far. You don't even need to go that far. It's just there are values and ways of being that are not to be lost about what it means to be human and what it means to be human on a planet that's related to nature. The booby prize is when you think you get to be responsible for it away from, you know, in those words of that tradition, God Yahweh. In the words of that tradition, um, you know, God Yahweh, nature. In those times when people were directly connected through a deep, graceful appreciation that everything including our daily meal, comes from what is provided directly by nature. And there's more stories like this in the scriptures if you look at them and you read them. That Tower of Babel story. You can only build that Tower of Babel if you've accumulated a big surplus. No native crowd of hunter-gatherers is going to have the time to do that. So the Mayan temples, the Incan stuff... What kind of societies are those? They're agricultural, right? Corn-based societies where they end up with enough surplus that they can build temples and develop hierarchies and have human sacrifices and all those kinds of things. And the story that gets written down in that Jewish tradition is like, God destroys that causes them all to speak different languages and they can't understand each other and they can't build their own uh, high rise to God and it gets destroyed. And it's like, you could look at that as like, you know what, don't forget who you are. At core, you are of nature, you are nature and don't forget it don't think just because you can gather up this surplus now because you can make the land productive and yield and have more kids and have more time and hire artists and hire warriors and do that all stuff with your surplus. And you can invent the alphabet so that you can write down what you have and you can invent the numbering system so you can keep track of how much grain you've grown. Don't think just because you did that that you become, uh, well... In a word, don't think you become God. Don't think just because you get control of that, that all of a sudden um, you don't need a respect for, a compassion for, a participation in nature. Like, like we are so dependent on nature and we think, ah, oh, go down to the supermarket. What's it going to be tonight? You know, go vegetarian, or get a burger, right? Sitting up here with these chickens, which is agriculture. But at least for me, I'm like stuck right here in the middle of nature. Looking out on a lake that had glaciers carving it 10,000 years ago or however long. I feel more connected to Nome here than I have any time since we left. And yet it's agriculture. But it's like a way of seeing, I think, that that's what those old scriptures were talking about. And then there's this incredible story. I think I got the names right. You know, I'm no good at names. But um, Isaac has and Rebecca, they have twins uh, in the story. And uh, so the twins um, come out. And the first one comes out. And he is red and hairy, described as red and hairy. And the second one, Jacob, comes out. I think it's Jacob and Esau. Esau comes out, he's red and hairy one. And Jacob follows, and he's grabbing onto his heel in the story. And he's very fair, very light, very frail. And Rebecca, the mother, sort of really loves this frail one. And the dad, Isaac, he really loves the red and hairy one, Esau. And so Esau, as he's growing up, he loves the wild. And he's always out hunting and bringing back uh, you know, food, which his father loves as food from the wild. And uh and Jacob he's hanging out with his mom he's learning stuff there and the you know right there at the farm and and uh, they grow up and when Isaac becomes old he's going to pass the blessing on to the oldest son and it, remember it was Esau the red and the hairy one who comes out first right the guy who's always out hunting stuff and uh, Rebecca the mom she really wants uh, Jacob to get the blessing, and so uh, she says, you know, put on, put on this hairy coat and you know, the skin, and I'll make up some nice soup, and you go in. Your daddy can't see very well anywhere. He, he'll give you the blessing, and uh, it works, and Jacob gets the blessing. And, and you can read this story lots of ways, right? Story of trickery and all these different things, and Jacob ends up getting the blessing, and Jacob ends up being very, very important in the history of. Uh, the society there and all the traditions. But you can also read it as like, like, this is exactly what's been happening worldwide, globally for the last 10,000 years. That this hunting, gathering life, the integrity of that life, which has a covenant, a promise to the land, respected by the elder, wanting to pass it in, and in comes agriculture. In comes Jacob and steals it away. Overpowers it. Takes it away. And after sitting under that mastodon tusk for those years, I think that's what those folks were writing about. But because our theologians are inside of agriculture, and because that story was actually written inside of agriculture, I've never actually seen this written about. And rarely, if ever, heard it discussed. But I would think that it's something to be considered. Thousands of years later, you have Jesus coming along. And what is Jesus saying if you take Jesus words in terms of this distinction between agriculture and hunting gathering where is the guy it seems to me that 5000 years or 7 or 8000 years into the experience of agriculture Jesus comes along to remind people of the values that humanity is rooted in nature, rooted in spirit. It's as simple as him saying, you know, if you've got two coats, give one to your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is all the law and the prophets hang on this. You know, we got rules and rules and regulations about how to do this and about how to do that and how... Um, You know, they talk, right, about redistribution, about tithing to the church, about jubilee years of 50 years, every 50 years giving stuff back. And Jesus is like, it seems to me a reminder back to who we all are. 10, 12,000 years ago, you and I, we are all living by the grace of nature. And I don't think we were meant to forget that. Just because we could start to grow beans and rice doesn't mean we were meant to forget that. You know, I got this little story about like, uh, <laughs> this agricultural world that like, oh, it began one, one summer and these two guys figured it out and one figured it out better and the other in the middle of the winter, he got hungry and they'd switch now from being out hunting, gathering to agriculture. And so they'd stored up all their beans and rice. In the middle of that winter, the guy who didn't do as well went over to the guy who'd done well. And yeah, he loaned him some beans and rice. He said, in exchange, I want you to give me 10 hours of work next uh, summer. And then that was the beginning. He had a little bit more power going into the next year and the other person had to give away some of his time. And these disparities of wealth distribution come in. And then you see the rules in the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition about how do you distribute that? How do you gather it? And Jesus kind of knocks the whole thing to pieces and just tries, I think, to get our awareness back to who we truly are. We live by the grace of the gift of coming in as human beings into this planet. And just because we can buy hamburgers now doesn't mean we were meant to forget that. And it's interesting that the Jesus story, Jesus is this poor carpenter who speaks from the side of poverty, about sharing and about caring and compassion. And then there's the story of the Buddha. The Buddha is coming from the side of wealth and riches. His father, mother were, you know, his father was this king of, a, of an area. And he had everything and yet it didn't satisfy. And as he went out on his journey of exploration, right? He, he had this journey and this awareness of this, this discovery of uh, non-attachment, that the way to relieve human suffering wasn't acquisition, but it was non-attachment got Jesus from the side of poverty saying basically the same thing. You got the Buddha from the side of incredible riches saying basically the same thing. We weren't meant to forget who we are and where we came from. And I walk back over to these chickens and I look at them. And like I told you now, right? We're making $125 a day. Any wise person to just go get a job at Starbucks instead of doing this. And all this food is agricultural food that I feed them, but but there's this sort of gracefulness about it that, shoot, it was just gonna be thrown out and discarded anyway. And get to collect it and get to like, oh, the circle of life, bring it here and get out of it. the Best eggs in town. Yeah, they're looking at me now like, what are you talking about? Well, I've just been walking around, making this podcast, you guys, thinking about gnome and how Wow, it even makes me think about you guys. So I've been trying to think about how to share this, this note for that other planet when I get to it. And I realized, just like those Sundays when I preached, you know, I just got to get going. I just got to get this thing started because it's actually a little scary to talk about this stuff. And the reason it's scary to talk about this is because I got outside of the system in Nome, Alaska. And I got to see outside of the system. And it's not that often that I find a place where I can talk about this stuff and feel a resonance of understanding. Because we're so far inside of the system that it's really hard to see out. We're so far inside of the system that even though I got outside, when I came to Chelan, I just fell right back in it. Right? I'm no different than anybody else. But I think there's like really, really, really important stuff here. Really, really, really important stuff about how we do culture and society and economy and religion and faith and life and even our eating. You know, that that feather that fell off of that chicken is laying in the ground there. That's a holy thing. I remember one time I was camping in uh, Arizona. I had my little old Honda Civic. remember those little old, tiny, tiny Civics? I had one of those. I had a lawn chair and a box of books in the back. And I spent a month going around the state and just uh, reading and hiking and I picked up this hitchhiker and it turned out he was this Apache guy. Um, Feathers, right? That's why I'm saying this. And and he gave me uh, these feathers, which he said was like an eagle feather and another feather. And they were all beaded up and wrapped up. And I still have it somewhere. Like just a feather, right? But it was this holy gift that he gave me. Yeah, what if I looked at that watermelon rind that those chickens... I've eaten out and looked at that, uh, this holy gift, this holy gift of this moment. And I think, well, I'm quite sure, based on my time with elders up there in Nome, that when you live in relationship to all of your food coming directly from nature, you didn't plant it, you don't own it, you don't control it, you receive it. Of course, there's skill involved in all that stuff, but it's not a competition. You receive it because... The Spirit has provided it. And that way of being, how do we, how do we like live in this world of consumption and competition and acquisition and surplus and fear and scarcity? How do we retain that attitude, grow that attitude, get it inside of our heart, share it in our neighborhood, pass it on to our kids? How do we do all that stuff the cool thing is all those traditions are there i talked to somebody who was visiting from uh, new zealand who said like in their area this guy's a tree grower he's over here on business he says in their area the maori people the native people have had such an influence that actually the local governmental politics are now having to talk about making their policies that will will be consistent with A multi-generational outlook like for generations and generations what are the impacts of this decision wow that's exciting all right well I don't know if this is enough Or actually kind of feeling like maybe it's way too much but we're making these notes and it's possible that these folks on the other planet that I can't really describe because I don't really have any sense of who they are maybe they're super patient people Or maybe they want things in like 10 second sound bites. I don't know. But this was life for me for three and a half years up in Nome, 1993 we arrived, 1996 we left. One of the shaping experiences of my life. So now I've shared three of them, right? There was that bike ride across the country to which hospitality um, Showed up for me as really the guiding principle of my life. Thankfully, I don't think that's too far different from Native culture. Not inconsistent with it anyway. And then last time, talking to you about those little baby chicks coming. Gosh, the miracle of life coming in the U.S. Postal Service. 800 miracles at a time. And we get to be involved in those lives. And then today, that experience... of being able to live in the direct experience of this hunting gathering culture. I even got to go out on a walrus hunt one time with elders from the community. Sure, we were using modern technology, right? Metal boats and motors and things like that. But these were people who had grown up in those sod huts in Arctic Alaska Whalebone foundations, seal oil lamps, living through those winters completely in clothes that they had made from uh, the seals and different things they'd harvested, and food that they had collected uh, from the sea mostly, and from the rivers, the fish, and a little bit of greens and berries, willow greens in the spring, surah and then berries, blueberries, cloudberries in the fall. For thousands of years, people had lived in ways in which they'd put together stories, beautiful, beautiful stories about what it meant to be human beings told from that place in that life. So anyway, there's definitely something I wanted to get down for my little own personal prosperity, and if uh, by chance this has uh, been meaningful to you, I'm very thankful. Um, You can look on our websites if you want more information about the farm, manyspokes.com, and the healing work that I do uh, based on the science of memory reconsolidation, trying to put together, like what does it mean to like live in a world and have a good life and share that good life in a healing way that's over at icemethod.com most recent book uh, the river of life um, oh i should just close up by mentioning that the first book i wrote one wheel many spokes um, took place after um, living in gnome uh, took my next call as a pastor in a campus ministry at the Michigan State University there in East Lansing, Michigan. And after four years there, took off and kind of a, a self-made sabbatical and up came this idea for a unicycle ride around the country. And Anne was gracious enough to like, agree to support that. And then it was like, oh, well, it should be for something. And then it was like, what if we do it as a fundraiser for these ministries that we were part of in Alaska? And so that unicycle ride through all 50 states. Well, started up in Alaska, flew down to Oregon, unicycled through all 48 states, then flew over to Hawaii and unicycled a few more miles there and it made it a 50-state trip. Actually still hold the Guinness World Record for the longest unicycle ride um, and, and hold the Guinness record for, for that ride. But that whole book was about the ride but about this thing about culture and about hunting gathering culture and our experience in Nome. And so on that ride, I went to as many, through as many native lands as possible, talked with as many native people as I could on that trip and really tried to reflect on on this whole thing about um, the ways we do culture. So that actually was the beginning of of the books that I've written, the five books that I've written and published. Um, The most recent being The River of Life. Okay, wonderful to be with you. Wow, there's a nice crack of thunder and you can see over across the valley, there's a big thunderstorm over there. I think I should probably close this out, get everything buttoned up here and uh, get under some cover here pretty soon. Y'all have a great day, wonderful to be with you. Happy chickens, happy hens, happy day. Be back next time, bye bye. right that thunder is really crackling so i'm off but thanks so much for uh sharing in the journey if you have thoughts about hunting gathering agriculture life all those different things i mean that's that's interesting stuff to me and you know what if you got a flock of chickens that you're taking care of you get lots of time to think about those things so it's just super to be able to share it with you feel free Uh, you can find places to email me uh, at either of those websites icemethod.com or at manyspokes.com. Alright, all the best. See you next time, I hope. Take care. I wonder will you